This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. The Bureau is dedicated to collecting and recollecting lost, half-forgotten, half-remembered, or just rare stories, oral testimonies and audio, often from the counterculture, from the underground, from the other side, or just from lesser-known parts of life. You can check out our work at bureauoflostculture.com. In this episode, we invite back a previous guest to share more of her stories and sounds from the time she spent as a foreign correspondent for the BBC. In the twilight of the Soviet Empire, as new countries and new states were being formed from the wreckage of the USSR, she reported daily from Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan. But whilst working, living and travelling in cities like Tashkent, Samarkand and Andujan, and crossing the borders between the family of Central Asian states with their ancient tribal loyalties. She collected an extraordinary archive of field recordings, conversations and music. And she's here to share some of them with us. She's documentary maker, radio producer and story collector, Monica Whitlock. Welcome back, Monica. Hi, yeah. So, as I said, you were here last time talking about your life and times as a foreign correspondent for the BBC in Central Asia. And it was quite a story. I guess if you've lived it, you know, that was your life, your career, your job. But for anybody who's grown up listening to the voices of the foreign correspondents coming out of the radio... Um, there is a fascination, I think, with you know how that whole thing works, and we heard quite a bit about that last time, about your life working and reporting from Central Asia, uh, mainly in Uzbekistan, and of course the rather dramatic story of how you actually had to leave in quite a rush, accused of uh, aiding and abetting terrorists and fleeing the country with your son and various members of your household, Uzbeks, who came to the UK. Uh, and they're still here as kind of long-term refugees. But now we're going to go back there, courtesy of your kind of tape recorder, really, and you're going to take us on a sort of journey around some of those places in Central Asia that you lived and worked through the medium of sound. What I've picked today out of my tape collection, and it's mostly recorded on cassette tapes with a mono mic and they were all pieces of music that um, I came across that were not particularly designed to be recorded but they're pieces that are recorded just in the street or in people's houses and to me they're incredibly evocative they're like finding old photographs that you haven't seen for a long time more evocative than that because in almost all the recordings all of them actually I can remember exactly who I was with and what the weather was like and the intensity of the situation and uh, I can't remember some of the the detail like who was getting married or what month of what year but the whole feeling and atmosphere around every piece of music comes back very strongly to me and you'll hear that they're not all sort of beautifully mic'd up there are all sorts of recordings. Some of them are chopped up and have been part of reports and I haven't got the tail end of them. So they're a bit of a rag bag, but really fun to pull out of the cassettes. Um, and I have boxes, boxes more to come. And um, we want to start with a piece that I really love. I think we should have a listen then you can tell us about it afterwards. How's that? <laughs> Oh, 
So this is a song performed by uh, one of my absolute favourite musicians. He's called Kalabai, and he's playing the dombra, which is a Kazakh instrument, and the song's in Kazakh. Uh, the dombra is this uh, two-stringed, long-neck, teardrop-shaped instrument, which you'll find all over Central Asia. And it's a particularly Kazakh thing, the two-string. Um, and Kazakh songs tend to be ballads and songs of life and death, and, and uh, they're the songs that everybody knows. Uh, Kalabai was a relative of the lovely family who lived and worked in our house in Ulitsa Yulava in Tashkent. And um, they were, when I said I'd really like to hear some music, they whisked me off to Kalabai's village and we all sat in his living room. Um, in my memory, it was extremely hot. And we sat and he sang and I recorded, he sang and I recorded, and it was just one of the most memorable afternoons uh, just not just the singing and the performance but just the willingness to take a complete stranger without any kind of prearrangement into your house and uh, and uh, give over your day to performing where is he now he's still in the village still performing i i, I guess so um, we went back a couple of times i have a lot of kalabai's recordings there's something even if you don't speak kazakh and i don't there's something that goes straight to the heart, I think, in Kazakh music that uh, is just full of depth and richness and uh, you feel the melody all the way through and uh, has a very special tone. And we're going to hear more from him right at the end. But in the meantime... What's going on there? Well, anybody who's been to Central Asia will immediately recognise that as a wedding in Uzbekistan, or it also could be in Tajikistan because the wedding uh, rituals and music are, are pretty similar. So the long, long trumpets that you can hear, they're called surne, and they're, um, they're as big as a person. And you have to, it's a real special technique. They're enormous. And the men stand outside the wall of the house where the wedding's Hold going on a to second. happen. They're as big as a person. I mean, like in terms of length, like sort of six foot long or something, like an alpine uh, horn? Well, yeah, bigger than that. Bigger than, than mm. yeah, they're huge. I mean, I can show you some pictures there. Mm. Uh, so the men play this in unison. And it's, uh, it's a signal to the entire community of that part of town or the village that the wedding's happening. Come on, it's time. There are certain sort of rituals attendant around the wedding. So outside the house, they'll light a fire 
um, and dance around the fire, which is, a, a, I think, a, a Zoroastrian traditional going back to that time. Uh, the men will come separately, uh, all the men and the men's family, the men's friends, they'll all arrive at the wedding together. And then there's an enormous number of complex rituals to do with food and guests and, of course, masses and masses of cooking and feasting <laughs> and eating. And um, it's the sound of summer. This can go on from spring through to October. Um, and it's the it's Central Asia wrapped up in a ball in one sound. Really. And what were they wearing? Normally, the woman would wear quite quite likely a white Western style wedding dress, or a traditional Tajik dress, for example. And she might have her face covered. And she has quite an arduous task because she's got to stand, looking very very polite, and bow to each guest. She doesn't get to uh, have. Uh, she doesn't sit and relax and eat the feast. She's very much on display. And the young man as well, very stiff, very formal. And then behind them, there would be probably a big carpet. This would all be outdoors, of, say, in the yard, which is where this is recorded. Um, and the, the fences around the yard are decorated, and there would be a carpet up probably behind the bride and groom. There at the head, the head of the, like, the main trestle table, and then there'd be trestles all the way down with men and women, probably separately. Um, older men together, younger women together, everybody in their groups, and then people would get up and dance in their groups. So the younger young girls together, the boys together, the grandmothers, and so on. So quite ritualised and structured. Mm. Although it felt like it was getting quite intense towards the end. It's intense to build up as the time goes. Well, there's a lot of dancing to be done. Mm. Were you doing the dancing yourself? I have. I have. Excellent. Now this is a little bit calmer. This is the sound, this is the bird market in Tashkent, and it's um, the markets are where everybody goes at the weekends or and other times to just buy whatever you want. And you'll get a lot of the bird fanciers coming to see little songbirds in, in, in uh, hanging cages, which you could put outside your house. But I picked this piece not really because of the birds, although they are evocative. It's because of the, the blend of voices that you hear. So you can hear Russian in there and Uzbek and, and other languages. And it shows, you know, especially Tashkent, what a crossroads it is linguistically, where people mix in these outdoor places mm. like the musician that you just that you're hearing now is a Russian, so it's a completely different sort of music. It's he's playing the accordion, and it's the kind of um, waltzy, tangoy, that flavour of a piece that you could hear possibly in Warsaw. You might hear it in Romania. It very much belongs to that part of the world, but it blends in very comfortably in Central Asia because, of course, it was. Uh, part of the Russian Empire and then mm. part of the Soviet Union, so Russian is a thing. And then in a very Tashkent style, which you'll hear now, the, the uh, accordion player fades out and then the next voice you hear coming through the crowd is an Uzbek mendicant offering prayers. And those two sounds blend absolutely mm. in this 
contact. But is actually having caged birds a big thing there? There's birds and there's creatures and rabbits you can buy. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. There are other different, different animals. It's not a big thing. It's not like one of those countries where you find birds in cages outside every door. Nothing like that. But the courtyard life is a big thing. People live in the summer. Mm. It's very, very hot for a long time. And mm. people live and sleep and eat all outside in a courtyard. I think you mentioned last time, that actually, the, ha- the sort of house architecture is sort of often around courtyards, right? It is absolutely around courtyards. Right, which gives you a kind of cooler place yes, and also a kind of more c- communal place as well, right? Yes, and cooking outside, eating outside, sleeping outside, your whole life becomes outside. So it wouldn't be unusual. And to have trees and fruit trees mm. in, your, in your courtyard, it wouldn't be odd to have birds too. Let's have a listen to some more voices, as you call this one, uh, chit-chat and prayers. <coughs> Who's that and what's she singing about? Um, well, as you realise, it's, um, it's prayers, it's sung prayers led by a woman um, who's trained. She might do various names for uh, religious women. Um, one is Altin and there are others. Um, and they would hold religious ceremonies for women and girls and instruct women and girls, young girls in the class. I think I recorded this in Samarkand. Um, in Samarkand and in Tashkent, there's considerable religious tradition. And the revival of religion, especially among women, is, is something you know quite apparent. Um, and those figures have, are very respected in society, people who, can, uh, who know the right way to do things, who can conduct ceremonies and advise young girls. Um, and they were very generous and, and open to being recorded, so that's why they're in the mix. I mean, in terms of, like, you know, religion and how it survived through the Soviet years, I mean, obviously it was quite a tough time for sort of, uh, in, a, in an atheist society, wasn't it, if you were of the religious bent? So their religious traditions in Uzbekistan managed to survive that, did they? I mean, it's, it's all the way through. They were able to keep practising their faiths and... Some people didn't want to go practicing mm. a faith. Some people were very relieved not to have to practice a faith. Um, but other people, other you know, I'd say the majority of people would certainly, absolutely certainly not identify with being an atheist. But mm. within that group of people, there's a range of uh, beliefs or a range of um, impulses about how important that is. I mean, for some people, it's it's terribly important and it's an important part of identity mm. and then for the for the women in those in those uh, faith traditions then how is it for them i mean what we would kind of consider sort of equality and stuff like that is that part of that that tradition or not you said you talked about the men and the women being kind of se- separated apart is it quite traditional in that way very traditional I mean, it depends where you are. In the middle of the city, it's going to be different, less traditional than if you're in a village where there's Mm. going to be far more separation. Women are expected to marry young. Um, In traditional families, the man is dominant, the woman is very subservient. But not all families are traditional. There's um, a whole different range of expectation there. Some women might go to university. Uh, Some women might never leave home without their husband's permission. I mean, the, the the woman that we heard in the recording, she represents an interesting sort of um, 
phenomenon really, which is uh, obviously religious person and traditionally dressed and and very veiled and so on, but somebody who's made who's also a professional because she's a prof- she's professional at what she does. Let's have some more of that one. This is a sacred spring and it's recorded, it's just by a roadside in Samarkand. Um, and as you can hear, lots of women are coming to wash their hands and feet in the sacred spring. And in a way, it illustrates everything about Central Asian religion. It's folk tradition, really. The sacred spring has been there for more years than anybody knows. But it has a sort of religious veneer as well. So people will come by and say prayers. Uh, Mendicants will come. uh, Imams will come. Sort of street religious people will come and lead prayers there. And the reason that the women come and take the water is uh, to answer their wishes. So, for example... um, a husband who's out of work or most commonly uh, somebody who hasn't yet conceived a child mm. that's a big thing medical issues social issues and if you want to know what the problems of a country are go to a sacred spring and see what people are asking for mm. and this is the kind of place uh, that you'll find all over central asia you'll find sacred trees with rags tied with um, you know votive trees, uh, special rocks, springs, very tied to the earth, but with a sort of a pattern of religious observance blended into that. Right, you mean like a so, what we would say here, kind of pagan uh, thing with personification of nature and nature spirits? I, I guess these sites are of different ages, and I don't know how far back they go, but they're, they're spots where for some reason or another, each one probably has its own tail, um, they've become associated with um, a votive practice so often it's ragged rag tying you see trees on a bare bare mountain you see a tree tied with rags all over and each one represents the wish i guess some of them probably goes back centuries and centuries and some of them perhaps it's because it's near near a holy site or where a, a hermit lives or something like that yeah so i mean well i mean and hermits and i mean it sounds like the religion is much more a part of this their society than ours than it is ours i mean obviously in the city center of the city is much more metropolitan and maybe a bit less so and stuff but it's so the the central asian countries generally they are quite religious places still faith matters and i think also faith has a place somewhere where governments are not always going to heed your wishes um or you might where community matters a great deal Mm. where um you're hoping against hope a lot of the time um, where the health service out in the villages especially isn't all that great um, faith and belief is, is going to be very important mm. let's move from the human to the animal again Yeah. Uh-huh.
<laughs> Absolutely wonderful sounds. I mean, uh, <laughs> makes you feel happy sort of listening to sounds like that. Doesn't it? I mean, actually, I've got to say that about your recordings. There is a sort of joy in life in in them, isn't there? There is, and uh, so I put in these horses because um, in the southern parts of Uzbekistan and in other parts of Central Asia and across the border in Afghanistan. Horses are absolutely, you know, a major thing. And this is a game called, it's called Buskashi, but it's also called, goes by lots of other names too. Um, and it's an incredibly exciting and huge game played in large sandy areas where um, two teams of horses charge at each other and the riders uh, try and take possession of this goat. It's a bit like polo, but with a goat. It's dead goat. Headless as well, I think you said. It's headless. Yeah. Yes, um, I not like polo. Polo doesn't involve a headless goat. No, but it's that kind of thing. So it's really wild and um, <laughs> enormous numbers of people play it. And to be a champion, you've got to be very, very brave. It's absolutely, you know, terrible things can happen to you. Um, especially, and, if especially if you're a goat. Yeah, well, it's too late for the goat. Um, and the, the horses move like a sort of sea up, up the sandbanks where the people are standing. So they all come together and you have to run and be out of the way. Um, so it's very fast and furious. And then at the end, the prizes are given out and there could be things like a carpet or uh, carpets are big as gifts or maybe some furniture. Um, and it's a, a very male thing. Women don't play it. It's a, it's a, um, a very macho, big guys, big horses, lots of noise and nobody knows what's going to happen. How do you know when you've won? Or who's won, should I say? I think you take possession of the goat or you put it down on the others. I, I can't I, I can't tell you exactly. It's sort of, sort of like kind of rugby with the goat, right, okay. It's, uh, it's, it's yeah, lively stuff. <laughs> and right. the winner is called Paul One, you know, the powerful, the leader, the uh, he-man. Right, so Monica, we're about to leave and head into another country. Before we play it, just tell us what, we, what we're going to listen to next. Right, what we're going to do now is we're going to cross the border. It's actually, we're going to go from Tajikistan across the little the river called the Panj, which becomes the Amudarya, the Oxus in, in English, uh, to Afghanistan. It's a short trip, just a few minutes, and there's a flat bottom barge that goes across. Um, and... It could be people could go across for trade or they could be uh, refugees coming from Afghanistan or on occasion the other way around. So uh, refugees from Tajikistan going to Afghanistan, depending on what the political situation is. There's a border there, but are they different people or they're very similar people? Is they're it... very similar people. Mm. And often they're actually related because, I mean, they're border people. They're different countries, but it's just a river running between. So when you cross over the same you get the same languages you get different um kinds of infrastructure um because the north bank would have been under soviet rule for the best part of a century and the southern bank not so there's different kind of styles there but essentially it's the same language same food same attitude same way of building a house same um same feeling really and people cross very comfortably backwards and forwards 
quite different than Heathrow, isn't it? It's much more celebratory for a start. Well, what you can hear here is um, stretch-out, overplayed cassette tape of uh, that darling and hero and all-time musical legend of Afghanistan, Ahmad Zahir. So uh, I recorded it on a bus. We were waiting for shelter in a bus, um, waiting to cross the border, uh, and that was the music that was playing. And you'll hear those songs Everywhere. You'll hear them everywhere in Afghanistan there. Um, although Ahmad Zahir was uh, recording in the 70s and 60s, uh, those songs will live forever and everybody knows them. Um, so, he's, so he was a huge star, was he then? He was a huge star, hmm. absolutely. And um, everybody acknowledges him as the huge star and mm-hmm. his uh, spawn. You know, everybody owes something to Ahmad Zahir. Um, you hear the, the the barge starting, and that's uh, this flat-bottomed um, motor barge that goes across from time to time, bringing people and their things. And it's amazing, o- isn't it? What what an image! And so there's a flat-bottomed barge and a small river, and that's the border. So when you does that listening to that, then does that take you back to that time when you're sitting on the bus with that tune playing and about to cross? So I crossed several times that border. Um, and one time was to visit a, a refugee camp of people who had been f- forced out of their homes in Tajikistan because there was a civil war in Tajikistan in the early 90s. And so they went to the place of greater safety, which is across the river into Afghanistan. There was a huge exodus of people, hundreds of thousands of people, and they swam the river or they uh, floated on uh, car tires um, or... Um, they lashed together rafts and they made camps on the other side all those people eventually came home again Um, but for a while this river crossing was where UNHCR would bring uh, flour and uh, supplies to refugees on the other side and eventually across that very crossing where we made that recording they came home again and they brought with them all these things that they're everything that they'd had in Afghanistan so I remember seeing people carrying things like door frames to their houses you know every single thing is precious who would leave valuable wood behind nobody Hmm. Um, also animals um, but visiting the Tajik refugee camps felt like a, a, a quite a special thing to do so when you get off the barge on the other side you're in a town called Kunduz which is in the news recently it's uh it's constantly contested as a border town. So at the moment, between the Taliban and, and Afghan national forces, and outside Kunduz, uh, we went to a town called Talokan, which was um, where it's the head of what was called the United Tajik Opposition. And all in that border area, there were these refugee camps of Tajiks. And the next tape, I believe. Is a rather remarkable one. It's the it's the Tajik Tajik United Tajik Opposition Refugee Choir.
Tajik Opposition Choir, right, and tell us about them and what, the, the, you know, just for somebody who doesn't know anything about these, as I don't, the opposition, in opposition to who and what was going on politically. When the Soviet Union ended, um, a civil war broke out in Tajikistan. And it's been sort of, it, I think the people struggling for words has, have given the, the sort of parties in the war um, sort of ide ideological characteristics that perhaps aren't always accurate, but um, there was a lot of uh, tension of, between different regions of Tajikistan. Um, and the, the people who are now in power in Tajikistan are the side that won. And they came from a southern region called Kulyab. And other regions felt that there was no place for them in the uh, in the in the new administration, and that they would um, suffer. And they left. And most of the people who left as refugees left because their villages were burned down and they had nowhere to go. Um, the war was brief and incredibly ferocious and bloody and confusing and people didn't there was nobody to call there were no phones there were no ambulances there were no um there was nobody to, to fall back on there was no united nations there was no nothing really it was a country very isolated and alone and people when their villages were raised headed for the water they headed for afghanistan just as they would have done in any time of crisis in, in centuries past. You, you get over the river and you find some security on the other side. And for them, Afghanistan was that security. And they stayed there until they felt that it would be secure enough to go home. Tell us about the choir. Well, I mean, it's not an official choir. It's just people who um, were uh, spending their time singing. I mean, which... You, often have in Central Asia is, you know, music is a great resource, the human voice, great resource. Mm. Here's a sound of war. <laughs> Who's firing at who? The year is 1996. So the Taliban have taken Kabul. And we were recording in the north of the country, which was not in Taliban control and was was holding out under some pressure. So their recordings through September, October of that year. Most of these recordings come from the city of Mazar-e-Sharif, which is one of the biggest cities in, in Afghanistan. Um, and it had, uh, it is a really vibrant place. There's always a lot going on and a very strong mood, I'd say, generally against the Taliban and not wanting Taliban control. Um, so there was, Mazar is famous for its, uh, what some people call the Blue Mosque, but it's the Mosque of Mazar Sharif, you know, which means the great. Mazar Shrine. Um, it's a beautiful blue mosaic mosque right in the middle of the city when people come and come, pilgrims come uh, for prayers. And all around the mosque are people doing anything they can to make a little money. So there's people trading and selling and um, uh, a lot of fruit selling. Um, and all these recordings, I think, show us a city that uh, that is really trying its best to 
to live to to live normally with in the teeth of this this feeling that you don't know when, when the war is going mm -hmm. to come you don't know what's going to happen you don't know if the Taliban are going to come up from the, from the south or not so it's a city on edge but always alert, always awake and, and around. And people trying to make money, trying to make plans, trying to think, well, you know, if the worst happens, do we sell our house? Do we sell our gold? What do we do? You know, where shall I put my sons? There are those awful choices that people have to make um, all the time. Um, and the sort of tension and vigor and energy in these recordings really reminds me of that time mm. and meeting those people who are so brave and have to think so quickly about such enormous decisions. For us, you know, here in Britain, I don't think any of us really understood all the, you know, the subtleties of the, these conflicts between different parts of the country. When you were there, I mean, in that city, for instance, you know, we heard the anti-aircraft and you're saying that you know normal life carries on despite all that, despite all the conflicts and the warring. And the, was it quite a dangerous place for you to be? I never felt afraid. Maybe that's because I'm not very brave. Um, Afghanistan at that time was and is very hospitable, um, kind, protective of foreigners. Uh, things have changed. I mean, this is 1996. This is a long time ago. And things change, you know, tensions change, politics change. I didn't ever feel that I was under any kind of threat from the people that I was with. Um, we were on the northern side of, of the front line. And uh, I mean, there were moments, there were moments. It, this was before the time when people were embedded and the, those sorts of uh, journalistic practices came in later than that. So we were much freer to just sort of wander around and record people. And um, Mazar Sharif at that time felt pretty secure. It did fall in the end, mm -hmm. but um, at that time it felt safe and it felt almost sort of fortress-like. But there is a recording from that time that I find very evocative and it means a lot to me. And um, we went, we were invited to somebody's house and he had um, musicians playing. They were playing tabla and harmonium, which are Afghan instruments. And it was just such fantastic talent and beauty and everybody was so focused on that music and it really blocked out all the nightmarish things that were going on outside and it, you know in that moment in that room at that time the music was everything
system and it is quite hypnotic stuff isn't it i mean you, you can just feel fast. yourself just kind of like relaxing into it somehow you know imagine how fast his fingers are moving <laughs> it's astonishing yeah. and how you can put aside this terribly tense difficult time of life who knows how long that ha that house is going to stand? How whether those people are going to ever see each other again, or whether those those families will have to leave the country, or and how and when and when is the right moment to pack and what shall we bring? All those decisions are hanging over that household, and yet the music just for that moment it stills the room. There's something also quite urgent about it as well though, isn't there? And there's sort of there's a kind of passion to it or something which is um you know, it's kind of it's rather trance like at the same time. Um but there's it a is. kind of energy there's a sort of wonderful kind of energy in it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not drowsy music. So that was in the house and then there's some more drumming here which is on the street. Yeah, I put in this drumming because it, it, there's just music everywhere, really. And this was a guy drumming on a... It was a, a, a wooden crate that had held grapes. And he just started to play on it. There was no setup, no performance. He just started to play. For you, there was, um, you know, there's work to be done, and there's a, you know, as you said last time, there's a dispatch to be filed every day, right? But f this, these sound like play for you. These sound like pleasure. This sounds like this kind of this collecting of these sort of this tapestry of the sound of the life that you were living. I mean, there is something amazingly um, joyful about m many of these sounds, right? Sure, and there's no distinction between work and play, really. I would record stuff and then use them to make features, and I kept everything. Um, the recording is, you know, I was a radio reporter, so I recorded all the time. Mm. Um, when, it, when there's a noise going on, you record it. It means that nearly all these sounds are serendipitous. They're just what mm. happened to be going on. You know, you get out of a car with the mic already live and, you know, well, what's there is what's recorded. Mm. And yeah. sometimes they're cut off in the middle or something goes wrong or something happens. But, um, right. you know, well, they're snapshots. So you've got pot menders here. A pot mender would be so you've 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 broken one of your kitchen objects and you take it out and somebody. I'm mean, assuming that this is a place where there's people who can fix anything. They can recycle stuff and there's. You can fix anything. You can make anything out of anything else. So you'll find people with a um, bucket made out of something that used to be a tin can, that's been shaped and given a handle, and things become a repurposed and refunctioned all the time. You can have anything made. Um, I've had uh, recording cables made just in, in, in a market like this. 
Um, I should just list maybe some of the things that are going on in, in these little uh, sound pictures that you can hear. And one of them is uh, people ma mending pots, you know, uh, saucepans, putting the bottoms back in of them. There are people selling cherries and people selling grapes um, and people selling all kinds of things and kind of jostling for space uh, to sell their grapes over somebody else's grapes. Now we're on the road to Andijan. Tell us about Andijan and what's gonna what we're gonna hear in this next. Well, I picked this recording because um, the road to Andijan. We're back in Uzbekistan now, and these are some of the last recordings I ever made in Central Asia. Um, and a, a drive that I always really liked doing was from Tashkent through to the Fagana Valley. The Fagana Valley is a string of towns that take, uh, if you went from Tashkent to China, that's the route you'd take. They're market towns, they're ancient, ancient market towns, and they all have a slightly different character. Um, and you have to drive across a mountain pass to get there. It's a long, wiggly road, and then you come down the other side, and there's the valley stretching out. And something I really enjoyed, especially in the spring and autumn, is seeing the herders coming up or down the mountains with their flocks and sort of semi-nomadic people uh, who are living in tents. Um, and they always have a fierce dog on the outside, but sometimes you can um, get out and record a little bit. And um, so on the road you'd have, you know, cars going past but just a few metres away on the, on the mountain sides, which, you know, in the spring it's full of crocuses and poppies, you have this very old style of life, uh, of, of herding, sheep herding. And this is a really short recording, unfortunately, but it's um, just a, a little encounter with those uh, peripatetic shepherds. There's a beautiful place in called Margilan and they have a uh, very special pottery there and they also have silk looms. Now, many Central Asian people in Fagana but also elsewhere they grow silk worms because it's a silk industry. Um, and the silk is woven in many places but especially here in Margilan and there's a, a factory that's been there forever with these old, old, old wooden looms and they're operated by young women, teenagers, girls um, and they stand opposite each other and I don't know if I can really explain this but they um, it's all hand operated, there's no machinery. Um, they fly the shuttle between each other and you can hear in the recording this clack clack clacking of the, of the, the strands of the, of the loom as it comes together and they they're weaving these iridescent, amazing natural colours to make this sort of shimmering silks. Um, and then at one point of the process, they put starch on the uh, on the end of the loom and they blow it. And it blows through the fabric and that gives it its stiffness and, and crunchy, silk-like nature. And these looms have been going... The, the loom that we saw is uh, 600 years old and they're <laughs> using these looms. 
Um, so when you're listening to the recording, imagine this big room of women all on these looms. Um, and that's their livelihood and their life. See, listen to how fast they do it. It's a sort of rhythm of life. They can weave in this rhythm from childhood. You have a recording here and it's um, Wind in the Plane Trees. Tell us about that. This is a recording of um, the Muezzin in Kokan, which is one of these Fagana towns, and we wanted to to interview him. But when I turned up, uh, it was time for prayers, so we did we did that later, um, and I recorded him, and it was such a, he had such a beautiful voice um, and unamplified. He just went up his tower and called, and then the villagers came. Um, and there was a, there were, as everywhere in, in Fagana, there's these tall plane trees which were swaying in the wind. And it's the combination of his voice and this wind was, um, I find it really um, sort of magical blend, the way that the sound just dissolves into the, into the whoosh of the tree and the leaves. It's by no means a fancy recording, it's, but it was a, a special moment. <laughs> beauty of the music and the wind and the leaves. Sounds young, this guy. Yes, he was young. I think sometimes we forget how musical what the beauty of the music of the Muslim He prayers. sounds young and yet the actual sound itself sounds quite ancient. So, Michael, we're coming to the end. We've got one more to go, but before we finish off with that, which is uh, return to the top in a way with the uh, singer that you mentioned before. So, you know, hearing this stuff now, it's... How long ago is it for you now? Is it 10 years or something that you were last there or longer? Oh, more than that. It's 15 years since I was last there, but these tapes are much older than that. These are mm. tapes mostly from the 1990s, not the last ones. Those are from 2005. Um, but some of the older ones are from the 90s, and it is, um, it's quite a feeling them getting them out and then digitising them and mm. making them playable. Mm. Does it bring it all um, back? Yes, I mean, like I, I said at the beginning, and with each one, it's it's more than a photograph to me. I, I feel completely in that space with those people at that time, and I can tell you who was there with me and during mm. every recording. 
it. You know, I'm completely in the company of those people again, in a way that's more powerful than a photograph. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for that wonderful sonic tour through your stories and sounds of Central Asia from your life and times. Um, I hope you come back. Take us through uh, some of your times in Iran and Afghanistan. That'd be wonderful. And I hope you, listener, enjoyed uh, Monica's stories and sounds as much as I did. You can check out all of what we do at bureauoflostculture.com and also, of course, on your favourite podcast provider. Leave us a glowing review to tell us how much you did enjoy it, if you did. And we will see you next time with more stories and sounds from the other side. In the meantime, I am Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. And Monica is going to play one more song and tell us about it first. What is it, Monica? I want to go back to Carla Bay in one of my favourite songs that he sang. And it's a, it's a, as far as I understand it, it's a love song um, between a, a Kazakh girl and a Russian boy. I think it's that way around. And um, it just has this wonderful resonance to it. And, it's, and everybody who was with me in that room at that time knows it's my favourite song. So I really wanted to play it. <laughs>
Thank you.